too. At the end, he had been the Hemingway's closest friend. It was under George's name that Ernest had entered the Mayo Clinic to combat his terrible depression. And Mary was there, in the spotlight, the grieving widow, reeling from shock. She did not have to imagine the gruesome self-inflicted shot that sent her husband into blood-splattered oblivion. She had been a witness, she and George Brown. Hemingway's funeral had been a private affair, admission by invitation only. Most especially no journalists were permitted, though the entire world was eager to learn the details. Every newspaper, radio station and television station reported the event. After all, one of the greatest literary figures of the 20th century had died by his own hand. Mary vehemently denied that suicide was the cause, claiming her husband's death resulted from a gun-cleaning accident. She was not so much trying to hide the facts from the world as from herself. The cruel, unbearable truth would only add to her tragic loss. Mary was in a state of denial. Endings and beginnings punctuated by funerals. Ernest's funeral ended an intense period of my own life. Just two years before, during Madrid's Sunny Seathrow Festival of 1959, I had first met the Hemingways. In July 1961, as he was laid to rest, I observed some of the characters who had influenced Ernest's life. Marceline, the barely older sister, who was paired as his twin in their infant years, and a constant rival throughout their childhood. Within my hearing, he had never spoken of her with affection. Younger brother Lester, sixteen years junior, nicknamed the Baron, received more scorn than esteem from the writer whom he physically resembled. Lester had inherited bluster, bumble, and congeniality, rather than genius. His antics were a constant source of embarrassment to his exacting, exasperated brother. There was the octogenarian, Charlie Sweeney, a retired colonel, whose association with Hemingway had spanned two wars and many decades. George Brown, who had driven Mary and Ernest back from the Mayo Clinic three days before Ernest's death, and who was the only other person present in the Ketchum house when the fatal accident occurred. Notably absent was friend and collaborator A. E. Hotch Hotchner, soon to be the renowned author of Papa Hemingway. Hotch had been a key player in the final year of Ernest's life and a close confidant of Mary during the months preceding his death. Mary would try unsuccessfully to suppress publication of Hotch's memoir, which she considered an unthinkable breach of friendship. Measuring up, not measuring up. These people had been put to the test and many of them had been found wanting. Although I had met only a few before, I knew something about each one, what they had meant to the person whose memory they now honoured by their presence. On that day, too, I had felt a hand on my shoulder as soon as the priest concluded the prayers for the dead. I turned to see a replica of Hemingway, as he would have looked fifteen years before. This was Lester. He urgently whispered to me, your ladyship. His standard respectful address for women, do you know where my manuscript is? 
He was referring to the autobiography he had mailed to Ernest at the Finca Vigia in the spring of 1960. The day of its arrival, Ernest took no pains to hide his rage. If the Baron wants money, why doesn't he ask me for money? He fumed as he brought the package outside through the library door and deposited it in the burn barrel. He poured on lighter fluid and struck a match. The flames curled upward to the sullen sky. Smoke trailed into the warm air, obscuring the view of Havana and the harbour beyond. It took hours before Ernest's equilibrium was restored. Not then, nor ever, did I reveal to Lester the fate of his labour. By the time I arrived in Sun Valley, two days before Ernest's funeral, Mary had remembered I was working for Newsweek. She then regretted inviting me. In her grief-filled state, she imagined I would use my invitation to further my career.